Support for Father David Abernethy and his ministry at the Pittsburgh Oratory of St. Philip Neri comes entirely from the donations of community members and listeners like you. The creation of future groups and podcast episodes depends on your commitment and generosity. We humbly ask that you consider a monthly gift of $10 to the Pittsburgh Oratory in support of Father David and his work. To make this or any gift, please visit www.thepittsburghoratory.org, click the Donate button, and write Father David in the notes section. You can also make a recurring or one-time donation directly through Podbean. Your commitment and ministry-sustaining support are greatly appreciated. God bless you, and enjoy the podcast. is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Okay, welcome back, everybody, uh, to Philokalia Ministries. And tonight we're doing uh, just a, a spe- little special event, reflection as we prepare uh, for the holy season of Lent. And I've often wanted to do this because I feel that it's a ne- neglected uh, uh, reflection in the life of the church uh, that we don't talk enough, especially in the West, about asceticism in general, what it means for us as Christian men and women. Uh, and not only its importance, but how essential it is uh, for us in terms of living out the faith. And uh, the title might seem a little strange to people, Enter by the Narrow Gate, the Ascetic Podvig of Living in the Modern World. Everybody looks at that with kind of curiosity. Uh, but basically it means ascetical struggle, but podvig comes from the Savonic, and it means upward movement. And so our asceticism, our exercises, exercise of the faith is meant to be something that is more than episodic, that we practice episodically. We are to see Christianity as essentially an ascetic religion, that we are constantly seeking to uh, practice the faith through uh, our prayer, our study, participation in the life of the sacraments, Uh, in order that we might be uh, drawing closer to God, overcoming our passions, growing in the virtues. And uh, and so it is an essential aspect of our our practice uh, of the faith. And I think sometimes we get into the habit of of practicing episodically, if at all, some of the things that I've mentioned. And uh, especially with Lent, often we have this 40 days 40-day period, and more often than not, it seems to be a period of endurance, uh, of embracing certain disciplines for a short period of time, uh, but then stopping that practice after the season of Lent. Whereas I think when we look at the spiritual tradition as a whole, we see asceticism presented as something essential for the spiritual life, that it's not meant to be episodic, but to be a regular part of our spiritual life. In fact, whenever we talk about fasting or have in some of the other groups, and we've looked at the Desert Fathers in particular, uh, they practice something called the regular fast. And uh, they would fast every single day. And they would eat one meal a day. And uh, in sort of the late afternoon, uh, it would be limited in terms of what they would eat, the amount. 
but then they wouldn't eat again until the next day. And it was seen as so essential in terms of humbling the mind and the body in order that one's prayer might deepen, uh, that the grip of the passions might weaken, uh, that one might gain a kind of clarity of mind and heart through the constant practice of fasting. And that in it, we are ordering one of our fundamental appetites, our, our desire for food, for sustenance. And in this ability to order this one appetite can give us a kind of strength and ability to order the other appetites that we have as human beings. And, um, and so we're going to get into this in great detail tonight. Uh, but as I said, it seemed like a fitting start for the season of, of Lent. Uh, to go a little bit deeper into some of the things that we've looked at in all the other groups and talked about uh, many times in passing. If I'm a little distracted here at the beginning, there are people still entering. Uh, okay. And so if you have the handout uh, of the PDF that went along with the email, you could follow along the text, or if you just want to listen, that's, that's fine as well. Uh, we'll make sure that we put it in the uh, chat section uh, of the podcast that goes up sometime this week too, if you want to go back and read it. And uh, I'll make sure I post the link to it on social media as well. Uh, I gained this from a couple of different resources. And one was uh, from online, uh, Metropolitan Loris, who died in 2008. And also from a work on uh, asceticism today. It's a monastic review, a, a Western periodical of the monastic life. And I just happened to be able to obtain it uh, through a used bookseller. Uh, I don't know how they came upon, upon this, but it's a, a little journal uh, called Word and Spirit. But the whole issue is dedicated to asceticism. And there are a couple wonderful articles that I'd, I'd like to review and post online, and maybe we'll send them out to all those who are on the email list uh, for Philokalia Ministries. But uh, Jean Leclerc, a Benedictine, rather well-known writer, has some wonderful articles within it. Jordan Amon, a Dominican, has an extraordinary article, The Role of Asceticism in the Spiritual Life, and a number of others too. Adalbert de Vogue, who we've mentioned here before, uh, his work on uh, to love fasting. And before he wrote his book, uh, on the, the subject, he had an article that came out in this journal first, and so I think everybody might be interested in that. Certainly to love fasting is not uh, something that one hears very often, uh, but it should be, and I think, I hope that uh, after we get through this group tonight, uh, our sense of that will grow, about that the, we see that he's not uh, simply in terms of the mortification that is involved, but the positive value uh, of these disciplines, what they offer us in terms of our intimacy with God, but also how they strengthen us in, in regards to our overcoming the passions. Uh, the second work uh, that I've, I found most helpful in recent times uh, was written a while ago by uh, an Eastern Orthodox author, a layman, not a monk, uh, but he wrote a work called, it was originally titled, The Struggle with God, and this, the newer title is Ages of the Spiritual Life. And again, I'll post it online. We're going to uh, put a little uh, book review section on the Philoclea Ministries site uh, to uh, keep track of some of these. But his name is Paul Evdokimov. 
And uh, he does a wonderful job in particular on the interiorizing of the, of the monastic vows or the monastic life and uh, how it is that we in incorporate the wisdom of the fathers into our day-to-day -day life within modern society. And uh, I think we've talked about this more in the West in terms of the universal call to holiness, that the holiness that we see in the desert monks and the discipline that we embrace isn't simply meant for the monastics and the holiness that they're called to isn't simply meant for them, but for all those, including those living within the world, whatever our state in life, married, lay, priest, or whatever it might be. And so these are some of the things that we're going to, to look at here this evening. So if you have the text with you, uh, I want to start here simply by looking at asceticism in general, and uh, then begin to, to look more deeply at uh, mo modern society in the world and why the state of the world in itself makes the practice of asceticism even more important for us, uh, given what we are facing in our own day. And so we'll pick up with the text. I'm going to treat this as we do our other groups. I'm going to take a paragraph or so, stop and open it up for conversation or questions, okay? So there are a few words as unpopular today as asceticism or mortification. It seems a strange contradiction that it is so often that so that it is so when we consider things religious, given the fact that in regards to most every human pursuit, it is embraced without question. We forget that Christian asceticism presupposes human asceticism, as is true with the athlete, scholar, or anyone who seeks growth and perfection in any field or endeavor of life. Every specific purpose requires some type of asceticism. It belongs to the vitality of human life. And if you could take away, I think, one thing from the group, it might even just be this, that it is part of the vitality of human life, that we see asceticism embraced in every other aspect of our life as human beings. And, uh, and as it says here, it belongs to the vitality of human life. So it's by engaging ourselves, exercising ourselves in a particular field, whether, as I mentioned, athlete, scholar, musician, uh, academic, in all these areas that we exercise ourselves in order to reach a certain level of perfection or proficiency. And so the athlete, as we've mentioned in other groups, will daily engage in practices, study uh, the playbooks, will uh, enter into the, the weight room, will control his diet, will do all the things that are necessary in order that he might excel. And same thing with academic, as we've mentioned, years of study, uh, not only uh, in the classroom, but outside of the classroom, uh, works in labs, um, further degrees beyond the undergraduate years. And so uh, great dedication involved there too. And then certainly the musician studying theory, uh, practicing every day as well as lessons. Uh, throughout the course of one's life, often beginning at the earliest of ages. Uh, and right when a, a child begins school, sometimes even earlier, they will be introduced uh, to playing an instrument. When my nieces were, were little, it was curious, I, I had to go to one of their performances. And with some of the little children who were like three years old, and all they would have them do is get up on stage with their violin in front of a crowd of about 500 people and bow. 
And it was to get them used to being up in front of a crowd of people, to get them used to what performing in front of a group of people would be like, so they would not be self-conscious, that they could focus upon the task at hand. And so if we're willing to do this with three-year-olds and to introduce them into the discipline that's associated with uh, what, they're, what they're seeking in their life, why would we do any less in the spiritual life? The thing that's most important for us in terms of our identity and our destiny in Christ, why would we make that something so episodic or that is rooted more in uh, personal enthusiasm or if we feel inspired personal inspiration rather than something that's embraced as a regular discipline and that we are introduced at, to at the earliest of ages. And again, you know, no one expects a little child to, to engage in this deep practice of fasting, but we remember uh, St. John Chrysostom and one of the groups telling us that uh, the practice of vigils uh, it was often embraced by entire families where they would get up and they would sort of follow the natural cycles of the day. They would get up in the middle of the night and they would pray. And they would even wake up the little children or he was counseling to do that with them, allow them to say a prayer and then send them back to bed. And so it was getting them used to at the most early age, at the early stage, uh, this practice of breaking the night for prayer, to turn to God at night and uh, to seek his protection and his grace. And so it belongs to the vitality of human life, discipline, strictness, exercise. These we seem to be able to accept without question as necessary to every worldly pursuit. But when it comes to living and exercising our Christian faith, pursuing the path that Christ has called us to walk, we become unabashed minimalist. Again, a strange contradiction. For while asceticism is indeed a human value, it is truer to look upon it as a religious value. In this case, its purpose is deeper, embracing the whole person and not just an aptitude for exercising this or that activity. Thus, there is no religion without asceticism. And if such a one should appear to exist, it would be a pseudo-religion. The end of such asceticism for the Christian is love. And it, is the on it only has value in relation to love as a means to arrive at it as a, and as a reflection of its presence in our lives. So what I said about asceticism within the human realm and human pursuits and particular aptitudes, we would say that within uh, religion and within Christianity in particular, uh, that we see it at, as being at the very heart of it and not just to uh, excel in one aspect of our life, but is essential to our very identity and our capacity to live out the life that we've been called to in Christ. Uh, the very means, the human aspect of our embrace of the grace that God has given us. And uh, so we would be able to say, you know, unabashedly, that there is no religion without asceticism. And that a Christianity without it is a pseudo-Christianity. That uh, we don't live the faith simply in our minds. In the same way we, a spouse wouldn't say, I love you in my mind, and then sort of ignore them the, race, the rest of the time and uh, not spend any time with them. They, they would be married only as an idea. 
that it involves the whole person and uh, a lifetime spent together and going through trials together, raising a family together, um, engaging each other in day-to-day conversation, allowing intimacy and, uh, to grow between each other, supporting each other in the practice of, of the faith. All these things would be the uh, part of the asceticism of the, of the married life. And, and yet, in, in some ways, we, we see it as unessential that somehow uh, our faith in an abstracted way is enough. Uh, you know, have you given yourself to Christ? Or often we'll hear sort of more evangelical preachers ask us that, you know, have you accepted the Lord or are you saved? And, uh, and yet there can be a very abstract notion of what that means. You know, do I believe that in my mind? Or am I living that in the fullest sense of, of the reality of it? Have I really given my life over, not to an idea, but to a, a relationship of intimacy with God in and through the person of Christ uh, that is seeking ultimately as its end to love God with our whole being, withholding nothing, knowing that we've been called to share and participate in the life of the Holy Trinity. And we hear from the Eastern Fathers that the end of this is deification of participating by grace in the very life of the most holy trinity. And so all of our asceticism is focused upon this end of loving God and withholding nothing from him. That in everything that we do, say, every relationship that we enter into, every work that we're engaged in throughout the course of the day, we do for him and for love of him. And in order to give ourselves over more fully to that relationship. And outside of this love, the Christian authors, especially the ancient ones, will tell us the asceticism has no meaning in and of itself. It's not an end in itself. And so if we are engaging in Lent, for example, simply as an exercise in discipline, it's not going to bear a whole lot of fruit for us. Uh, Or, you know, this isn't to criticize it, but I hear a lot of talk from young men especially here in the university setting, talking about Exodus 90 and a a number of other similar things that involve this kind of asceticism uh, and deep, often very deep discipline uh, and that requires a kind of strength of will. And so in some ways I admire it and the, the desire, I think, to expose those who are young to the ascetical life, but is it something that endures? Is it uh, something that comes to be seen as a regular part of the spiritual life? Or uh, does it end at some point? Is there something there that allows the individuals to engage in it, to to see it as an integral part of our understanding of Christianity as a whole, and as uh, a means to loving God more fully? Because we've talked before that our ego can become wrapped up very much in our practice of religion. And uh, our faith can be very self-focused and our pursuit of the things of the faith. And, you know, the Pharisees may have died out many centuries ago, but they exist in our own day and within the church and perhaps in our lives, we have have seen them manifest themselves over and over again. 
where we are you know, practicing our faith in order to create a certain self-image or maybe to uh, create a kind of sense of security for ourselves, uh, kind of uh, fire insurance, if you will, uh, against the, the coming judgment. Uh, could be fear-based rather than love-based. Uh, and so we have to really examine our hearts deeply and Lent's a perfect time for us to do that. Why is it that we embrace these disciplines and are they rooted in love? And how is it that they, we allow them to become rooted in love and become something that is more than an episodic practice? That, we, they, the, that these practices become something we love. And I mentioned to you the, the work by Adalbert de Vogue, who was a Benedictine who wrote the book, To Love Fasting. And a, you know, about, I don't know, 25, 30 years ago, I read it for the first time. And it was the title at, fr at first that attracted me because I'd never heard anybody talk about loving fasting. Most people will talk about hating fasting and how miserable it makes them feel or the headaches that it gives them or low blood sugar and, or that they weren't able to sustain it for more than a few days. Uh, but can we get to a point where we love fasting because we see that it opens up this greater space for God, that it does humble the mind and the body in such a way that it allows us to be more attentive to God in our life of prayer and that involves the whole self, uh, the turning of the whole self to God. And I think our understanding of repentance needs to be tightly uh, connected to our understanding of asceticism as well, because we often see repentance in a similar way as we've mentioned in other groups, that we can see it as episodic, tied to, say, certain falls in the spiritual life, falls in the particular sin. We repent, we go to confession, we take upon ourselves a, a, a particular penance that is given to us. Uh, but repentance is really to be something that is part of the fabric of our Christian life, a constant turning toward God, and so we are constantly striving uh, through the overcoming of our passions, the ordering of our desires, through the practice of the ascetical life, especially of prayer, of redirecting ourselves toward God. And this is why we, we find, especially in the Eastern Fathers, uh, the foothold being the constant remembrance of God, because it allows for that shift to take place in a very swift and simple movement. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. The Jesus prayer. That this simple prayer that only takes a moment can redirect the mind and the heart to God. And when you add uh, the audible saying of the prayer and prostrations to that practice, more and more the whole self is involved in that movement toward God. And the ideal, certainly for us, is to uh, have that prayer become unceasing, that we are constantly turning the mind and the heart to God uh, in order that it becomes so deeply rooted within our hearts that even when we're engaged in daily activity, our work, our conversations even with others, groups like this, that on the deepest level of our being, that prayer is still uh, 
being repeated that within us it had become so tied to the spirit that dwells within us that there's this constant movement of love toward God. This is how deeply we would want the prayer to be etched within, within our hearts. And uh, we see it described uh, in the, the writings of the fathers, often in a very beautiful way, you know, falling asleep uh, with a prayer on their lips and waking first thing in the morning with the prayer on their lips again. And so that there isn't one moment of the day that they aren't seeking to be attentive to God, to be mindful of him. Josephine. You have to unmute yourself. This is always challenging for newbies. Okay, maybe we'll come back to Josephine when she's able to unmute. She's still on here? Okay, I think we might have lost her. Uh, Jean-Paul, you asked if I could restate the name of the journal. It's called Word and Spirit, number 13 from 1991. And again, we'll post that within the chat and I'll make sure I make it available to everyone. But all the articles again are dedicated to asceticism. Any other thoughts or comments before we move forward? Okay. I imagine some of this sounds pretty familiar so far. I tend to repeat myself for all those who are new here, so get used to it. Okay, it seemed fitting then, as we consider the spirituality of the Philokalia and the writings of the Desert Fathers and Lent, that we would examine what is described in Orthodox spirituality as ascetic podvig of living in the world. We are called to engage in the ascetic struggle and discipline of our faith. To neglect such a thing is not mere laziness, but a failure to love. We should seek to give everything of ourselves to the beloved, withholding nothing, and walk along the path of life that he has opened for us at the cost of the cross. So this takes it to another level, that it's you know, not only laziness, the failure to practice it, but it's a failure to love, that our desire for God is something that leads us to asceticism. Uh, our longing for his love and the, the completeness and the fullness that we find in him alone is what draws us to asceticism. You know, anything that would be an impediment to that relationship and intimacy, we would strive through the ascetical life to overcome by the grace of God. And, uh, and so, you know, the deeper our love for God, the more constant our ascetical life is going to become over the course of time. And, you know, of course, we want to do this in a prudent way and under the counsel of an elder or spiritual director. Uh, but nonetheless, the greater the love, the, the more that we are going to be committed to it. Sheila Applegate. Can you hear me? Am I, I can good? hear you. Yep. Okay. So this is giving me a little 
little pause to think. I wish I'd paused to think about this a few weeks ago because I feel like Lent comes upon me really quick. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm always at the last minute like, okay, I'll give this up. You know, I'll give this thing up. And it's just not like really heartfelt. Um, but what I what I like about what you're saying, and I, and I want to get to this point mm-hmm. where I, I can kind of do this, is, is the idea of even that fasting is not eating is what I hear you saying a lot of. Because oftentimes, you know, whether I, you know, I think a lot of us will give up sugar, you know, it's like the thing or meat or whatever, at least in the Western Catholic um, church. And, but what that does oftentimes is I'm constantly still thinking about, well, okay, in this meal, what can I not eat? And then what can I, and always kind of like finding ways to finagle things. You know, I feel like I'm spending more time thinking about food than not. And, and I, I kind of like the idea though I don't know how ready I am for it, of even just not eating for extended periods of time and then not let that being a void or a time to think about the food. But I think what you're saying too is entering into deeper prayer or you know, allowing that time I would be eating um, to enter into God. <laughs> but, but I don't know really how to get there, you know? Right. <laughs> so. Well, I think it's getting there is starting with this. You know, it's with our understanding of it as a whole. You know, I think when we look at the Eastern Rites in particular, they have maintained their practice of fasting. And uh, even leading up to Lent, they, they begin to let go of certain kinds of food as they enter into the, the fasting period. And in the West, we've minimized fasting to such an extent that we basically have only two required fasting days in the year, Ash Wednesday and Good Friday. And, uh, and fasting has been redefined into one normal meal and two small meals. And really that's not fasting. That's eating two little small meals and one regular meal. <laughs> you're breaking the fast whenever yeah. you eat something. And uh, so this is why I bring up Adelbert de Vogue because I think he clarifies something for us about the practice of fasting, not only among the monks and within monasticism, but fasting as a whole. And uh, I think we've moved to this kind of minimalism in, in the West, where we have lost the, the seasons and the, the periods leading up to Lent that exist, I think we see within the Eastern Rites, uh, in order that people might prepare themselves for it. And so whenever there's a void, like this, in terms of counsel and guidance, then I think people are left to grasp at various ideas. What should I give up? What are you giving up this Lent? You know, is the common question you hear in Roman Catholic circles anyways, everybody asking each other. And, you know, it often surrounds, you know, certain kinds of foods, sweets, alcohol, or television, or, you know, movies, computer, whatever it might be. But people are often unfocused in it. And this is not to criticize them, because I think there has been this void in spiritual counsel. And so when it's episodic, and when there is no preparation, then I think it's not going to be something that's steady. Lent is really a springboard into entering into our spiritual life more fully and deeply. And so again, it's not meant to be a period of increased discipline or endurance, but rather a deeper reflection upon our life and a greater turning toward God. 
and a greater entering into those spiritual disciplines that should be a regular part of our spiritual life. And again, we've gotten into this mode where we will begin certain practices and just at the time when they might even be able, might start to be taking root, we stop after 40 days and then people go on a binge. You know, with I think Easter is celebrated with so many sweets and desserts and everything for so long uh, that, you know, beyond the normal period of celebrating a feast, uh, if there has been uh, a deep immersion, a deeper immersion in those practices, then a person should long to gravitate back towards them as a part of their regular spiritual life. Because what they are seeking again, if we see it in context, is this love for God, to give themselves over to God in love. So why would you want to give off of and, and let off of these spiritual practices if they are part of the means that draw you closer to him? And I've mentioned in some of the groups that St. Benedict in his role has a section on Lent. And uh, I had a seminary professor who did a study on the role and joy is mentioned in Benedict's role most when he's speaking about Lent. And uh, even the deacon here, and not to uh, focus on him today, but in his homily, he, he said, unfortunately, this Wednesday we begin Lent. This is Ash Wednesday. And I get what he's saying there, but our attitude should be opposite. We should be saying, this week is the beginning of Lent, in the sense that we are, as a community, as a body, uh, focusing ourselves in a deeper way upon our relationship with Christ and on all the things that aid us in that process. And our attitude should not be that it's an unfortunate period, because it requires greater discipline, but that the greater discipline leads us to something that we hunger and long for more. And in some of the groups, we've talked about the meaning of the word desire and how frequently it comes up within the writings of the Desert Fathers. And we, not too long ago, let off of our reading of St. Isaac the Syrian, who mentions it constantly throughout his work. And the word desire means sense of lack, sense of incompleteness. And so, you know, our sense of lack in fasting heightens or intensifies our desire for God. And we've talked about fasting in particular in this regard and how Jesus redefines it within the gospel. Uh, they do not fast when they have the bridegroom with them, when he's asked about why his disciples don't fast. He says, but there will come a time when the bridegroom is taken away and then they will fast. An altogether new kind of fasting will begin because it's rooted in this desire for the heavenly bridegroom, the beloved. And so they fast in order that they might experience on a bodily level a hunger and a desire for what Christ, the bread of life, uh, alone can offer us and fulfill. He alone can fulfill the deepest desires of the human heart and fill that lack that is within us. And so when we aren't engaged in the spiritual discipline, when we aren't engaged in the ascetical life, we aren't ordering that desire toward God. And I think that's why we find that desire being directed to all these different things within the world, because we, we do have within us, within our very being as human beings, 
this uh, longing for, for God. And when it's not fulfilled, when it's not sought, we are going to seek to fill it with the things of the world. And so we will fill it with one thing or another, you know, whether it's entertainment or food or drugs or alcohol, sexuality, sensuality. You know, we, we see people running to these things and perhaps we've run to many of them ourselves throughout the course of life, seeking to fill that void. And it's not as though one is necessarily even conscious that they are doing that and deny God as much as people might want to. Nonetheless, we've been created in his image and likeness. And it's only in the context of that intimacy that we are going to experience the peace of the kingdom, but also the the fullness of what it is to be a human being. You know, we heard uh, St. Theophan say, you know, a person without faith who's casted off altogether ceases to be a man. A man is no longer a man. That we cease, we, we are setting aside, we are cutting off something that is essential to our identity and what God has given us. And in some ways, we, when we set aside the ascetical life, the exercise of that faith, we become less than what we are meant to be. If we're not moving toward God, if we're not striving as he enter through the narrow gate, that's why I have this title, you know, strive to enter by the narrow gate or the narrow door, uh, strive, agon, agonize to enter by the narrow path. And so our longing for that love should create a kind of urgent longing within the heart, an agonizing, a desire that draws us toward God uh, at whatever cost we might have to pay. And, you know, if this isn't how the mind and heart are formed early on, if our view of religion and our view of Christ and our relationship with God is not shaped in this way, then we are going to fall into a kind of intellectualism, that faith is going to be this abstract notion within the mind or psychologically, It is going to be a a construct that is part of our lives, but not something that really shapes our lives. And the ascetical life is to draw the whole self into this relationship, to move from the mind into the heart through the involvement of the whole self in the spiritual life. And so in the East, you know, I forget how many fast days that you have. Is it 160 some throughout the course of the year? It's about that 162, I, I think, or along those lines, a fast or abstinence of a fasting of some sort. And so a much more regular sense of that. And then periods where obviously it's deepened. And uh, in the West, I think we've cut ourselves off pretty much from the, the spiritual tradition where I think even where those who have an intuition that this is important, you know, when they're struggling with the passions, uh, that uh, they don't know often where to turn, or, you know, they're turning to things that present one aspect of it. And I don't know a whole lot about the Exodus 90 or things such as that at this point. I haven't looked into it too deeply, Uh, But I think my concern is that outside of the spiritual tradition of the whole, we can often be presenting a truncated view of what that would look like. 
And I, I think, you know, we have this treasure house available to us of the wisdom, you know, of the fathers and mothers of the church, this living, uh, these living icons, if you will, of the gospel, those who really immerse themselves deeply in the spiritual life that are at our fingertips and that we have access to as never before. And so we should take, take advantage of it. Okay. So I want to move on a little bit further here. So, but that, this is the main, you know, the, the starting off point here, you know, understanding asceticism, both as something very human, but as an essential aspect of our Christian life and identity. And again, you know, if we could take one thing away from it, from this group, I would hope it would be that, because I think that becomes the entry point for us to begin to look at our spiritual life in a much different way, a much more complete fashion. I offer here now edited excerpts from a lecture given by Metropolitan Laris, who died in 2008. He captures the essential ascetical nature of the Christian life stated above, as, as well as the challenges to such a view for those living in and formed by the modern culture. And so uh, you're going to hear some familiar names here, uh, in particular, St. Theophan, uh, St. John Constat, who is a great uh, Eastern Orthodox saint as well, and among a number of others. And uh, But first, we want to take a look at what modern society and culture really demands from us in regards to our, our practice of the faith. What is it that we are facing in our day that makes a kind of clarity about this something essential? Okay. The situation of a Christian who lives in the contemporary world may be described without any exaggeration as extremely difficult. The whole of present day life and all its tendencies in one way or another is directed against a person who is trying to live in according to the teachings of the church. In life around us, in our environment, in our heterodox surroundings, everything is essentially a total denial of Christianity. If in the beginning of the Christian era, Christ's beloved disciple, John the theologian could write, the whole world lieth in wickedness, then how much more justified we are in speaking thus in our times. And so, you know, I think especially in, in modern times, we've been taught that sort of entering into the culture, that somehow we will redeem it, or that we are to mix within the world. And, and thereby expose others to the, the richness of the faith. But outside of living the life, and when we've been sort of cut off on so many different levels uh, from our spiritual tradition, that simply puts us in, in harm's way. And the world and the culture will always be stronger uh, than the individual in that regard. There are so many things within our world that are contrary to the Christian faith. And in the world, within the scriptures, within the spiritual tradition, uh, it's often seen as the, the fallen aspects of creation and of ourselves, uh, including the flesh, all the things that uh, would lead our desires not toward God, but towards the pursuit of the things of this world. And uh, we are told explicitly within the Gospels that uh, he who loves 
the world is at enmity with God. And so to, you know, freely and in an unexamined way to immerse ourselves simply what the world throws into our laps is a foolhardy way of approaching the Christian life that we are going to expose ourselves to so many things and open ourselves up to so many different spirits that are going to lead us away from Christ. And so to be discerning, to be discriminating uh, in terms of how we engage in our lives because we love Christ and desire to please him in every way means that we are going to be very disciplined and strict in that fashion. You know, if we're told by St. Paul, we take every thought captive and we make it obedient to Christ, that this is really the pinnacle of our asceticism, that we take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. What does that mean in regards to our day-to-day life? That we take captive, if you will, everything that is around us within the world and ask if this conforms to the mind of Christ the life that is set before us in the gospel, in the Beatitudes, in Christ himself as the standard for our lives as human beings, uh, in the Beatitudes, you know, is anything that we see within the world uh, something that leads us to that? Or is it something that we should set aside or avoid? You know, not too long ago, uh, if you're a Latin Rite Catholic, the God, one of the Gospels was, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Or if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. You know, that we must be willing uh, to sacrifice those things, cut out of our life those things that become an impediment to our loving God. And that might be painful, you know, to enter into the spiritual battle, to fight the good fight of faith, to enter into the fray, that we're not going to come out without scars, uh, just like any soldier. And if you remember, the the word for novice in the oratory is tyrone, from the Greek tyros, which means soldier in training. And so the ascetical life, and uh, as we initiate people into the ascetical life, it should be with the same sort of thought in mind. Soldier in training, young, young soldiers in training, to engage in the spiritual battle that is set before us. Uh, Again, against principalities too, that are with a kind of malice set upon uh, breaking down that relationship with Christ and pulling us away from the grace that he's offered to us. And so there has to be, over the course of time, a clarifying what it is in our minds that, that, that draws us into our passions or enlivens them, what it is that distracts us from God and pursuing his will or steals the stillness within us that draws us away from prayer, that agitates the mind and the heart. It doesn't take too much thought in that regard to think about television, the news. Five minutes of it agitates the heart beyond measure. And any peace that we might have gained through a time of prayer can be stolen in an instant. And, uh, you know, we, again, for some of you that are here for the first time, uh, this might be new, but others I've mentioned before that entertainment, uh, as we've talked about it before, means uh, uh, in between 
It's that state in between reality and fantasy. And so when we engage in entertainment, we are escaping reality on a certain level. We are seeking to free our mind from having to deal with the realities of our day-to-day life and with ourselves, with the truth. And, you know, we turn it into recreation. And uh, we, I think we try to rationalize it as being somewhat innocent, so long as we avoid things that, you know, aren't clearly immoral. But nonetheless, it has the, the same effect upon us, that it distracts, that it pulls us in to virtual reality, that in-between state. If God himself is reality, and this is who we are seeking to enter into a relationship with, it is there that we would be restored most as human beings, is there that we would find the deepest comfort and consolation. And yet we are pulled over and over again to seek that momentary and passing consolation by vegetating, by stepping out of reality. And uh, I love the, the little study that they did that says when you watch television or you get wrapped up in television, uh, you, you have less brain activity than you do when you're staring at a blank wall. And that should tell us something isn't right there, that we are escaping reality in a pretty profound way. And I think that's why we know it's true, because we say, you know, I just want to vegetate in front of the television. You know, we laugh about it because there's part of us that wants that. We want to escape the pressures of day-to-day life. And what is more easy than turning on the television or surfing the net or, you know, going back to Facebook or checking our emails, you know, anything to sort of captivate uh, to take hold of our minds so that we, we don't have to deal with things. And I think that's why silence is often so painful for us, because, you know, it's there that we encounter God, he who is reality in the deepest way, but we also encounter and see the reality about ourselves in an unvarnished fashion. And I think that can become very difficult us and to remain, allow ourselves to remain in that silence and to listen to what God is saying to us or what he reveals to the human heart. And so it takes a willingness to be vulnerable, I think, on that level and to remain in it, not to run, run away from it. Okay. Any questions or comments at this point? All right. Being a true Christian, prepared to preserve unto death one's faith in Christ, our Savior, is much more difficult in our day than it was in the first centuries of Christianity. It's true there were persecutions then, and Christians were tormented. But the Christians well remembered the Savior's words, fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. Being fortified by God's grace, they joyfully went to their martyrdom and gave up their lives for Christ. This was also the case in Russia during the torture and persecutions. Now nobody threatens us, living here in freedom with persecution and torture. But in spite of this, 
A persecution in its most diverse forms is being carried on against Christianity and against the Christian way of life. Today, we see that everything connected with faith in God, with the teaching of God's word, with Christ's teachings and the teachings of the church, in one way or another, is being driven out of a person's life. This process that is taking place in the contemporary world is a process of apostasy, and it can be directed in every aspect of life, detected in every aspect of life. Great, great way of putting that. Uh, because we often aren't this clear, I, th I think, in our, our thinking, that everything that we see going on in our culture, that there is this pervasive movement that we see taking place over the course of time that undermines not only the Christian faith, but I think our, our perception of reality, what it is to be a human being, uh, and uh, calls into question, you know, every way that we perceive our lives as human beings and refashions our sense of freedom uh, from being tied to living in that relationship with God and being found through living in that relationship with God to being free to do whatever one pleases, to shape that identity, to shape reality, in fact, in whatever way that we see fit, that that's freedom in the mind of so many in our day. And it's being pushed harder and harder. We see it emerging in every, every part of our life, you know, whether it's from gender identity to any number of things. And, uh, and it's being pushed on people at an earlier and earlier age. And, uh, you know, it's leading to a kind of societal psychosis, you know, where there is no reality. You know, that there are no, there is nothing for us to hold on to or for a person to hold on to if you subjectivize everything. That it's what I believe to be true or what I believe to be real or what I identify with. And the moment that we begin to go down that path, it becomes very difficult uh, to get things moving in the opposite direction. And so he says, you know, there's a kind of apostasy in this because we are turning away, not from just an idea or a truth in an abstracted fashion, but we're turning away from he who is truth. And so there's a profound rejection of Christ found in it, a profound rejection uh, uh, of, of love itself and what has been revealed to us. And, and so we, we need to be able to frame it in this light as apostasy, that we are abandoning the truth, that we are turning away from the truth in the most personal way. It's a failure to love and a failure to give ourselves in love. And in that, you know, every step that we take in that direction, there's a diminishment of our identity as human beings and our understanding of ourselves as being loved by God and created for him and the destiny that has been made possible for us in and through Christ. All these things fade out of the picture altogether. And I think even for many Christian men and women who again hold in mind a belief in Christ, we see what's taking place is that that becomes more and more 
abstract, you know, it, it becomes more and more of an idea, you know, pushed out to the margins of the life, maybe the fulfilling of some, you know, sense of obligation that is really rooted in one's upbringing, but tied to nothing more. You know, the, the sense that one is getting something or receiving something, but not a real clarity about what that is. And also what that means for us as human beings and also the responsibilities that it gives us as human beings too. How is it that we are to live our lives? How is it that we are to love and give ourselves in love? You know, what is our understanding of the moral life or moral truths? All these things uh, begin to fade from view or become distorted. And this is the reality in which every Christian finds him or herself immersed in our day. And so we have to sort of break down the illusion pretty quickly that unless we are deeply immersed in the life of faith and in the living tradition, unless we consciously and clearly understanding our, ourselves as part of the body of Christ and that we live by his grace alone and that we are you know called to live this life at every single moment that we move out of the episodic approach to our faith to have it something be something that's all consuming then our faith is not going to be something that perseveres or endures and uh, so what is needed in our generation i don't think is going to come through lectures or through arguing about it or through talking about it on the internet. You know, it's going to, I think, take place in the stillness and the silence of prayer, you know, of those who give themselves over, commit themselves to Christ in the deepest possible way and allow the gospel to shape their lives and to have the life of prayer shape their lives. And I think many of us probably have encountered individuals like this and, you know, there's no fanfare there. I mean, they simply live their life given over fully uh, to God, but uh, they're not going to attract a lot necessarily a lot of attention, attention to themselves. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I think we, we talked a little bit about the fact that, that we can sort of enter into the culture so freely, freely, and that we blend in is an odd thing, you know, that Christians should seem peculiar in our day and age. We should seem odd because our view of the world uh, is turned upside down. You know, there's, if, if we understand the revolutionary nature of the gospel, you know, of the Beatitudes, what Christ was saying to the people in his day, then we wouldn't fit. I think, into this world neatly or comfortably. And anyone who does, you know, bear witness to that reality, I think, you know, begins to experience the, the pressure and the rebuke of those around them and within the world it becomes more and more difficult to find peace within the world. Peace with Christ, yes, but in the world, no. And we have to stop seeking it because it's not going to provide it for us. And we can spend a lot of the time and energy you know, looking for ways to find it. 
but we're, we're always going to find ourselves disappointed if it's outside of that life in Christ. Okay, any thoughts or comments before moving on? So if we look at the modern world, apostasy, you know, to embrace it, to live within it, you know, at this great cost, you know, there is a turning away from Christ. Anthony. I think maybe one reason why we want to seek relief and vegetate, well, two reasons. One, it's very difficult to do this without cultural reinforcement. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, um, why do Italians eat fish on Christmas Eve? Fish smells when it's cooking, but we do it because we do it. And if we adopted these ascetic practices as a culture, it would be a little bit easier. Uh, but we don't. And, and, and the second thing is the nonstop barrage and then the fears that you're going to be barraged by the devil when you're trying to live a good life. It hurts. It's very annoying and difficult. And I think that's one reason why, okay, shut it off. I don't want it. This feels crazy. I just want it to stop. I, and of course, that's a lack of fortitude, but it's a practical reason why we break down, I suppose, or at least why I do. Yeah, that's a great point. I've heard many Christians say the same thing. The moment I started practicing my faith, my, my life fell apart or my life became miserable. And part of that is that we do come under attack, especially in the life of prayer. Uh, but then we begin to see, and God, I think, allows us to see that our intimacy with him and living a godly life is not about success within the life of the world. You know, it's success in the life of faith is, you know, living out the Beatitudes and fulfilling his will, you know, embracing the commandments and taking up our cross daily and following him. You know, it's going to seem like nonsense to the world, but once we begin to do that, then we begin to see that, you know, this life does not promise the Christian peace and happiness. You know, that, that, found, that is found in Christ, but it's not in, found in the things that the world offers to us. And we try to live, I think, so often with one, one foot in one world and one foot in the other. And it's then, you know, we are, we become split, you know, it's, it's sort of a kind of schizophrenic existence uh, that we try to live. And we feel it, you know, I, I think we, we know when we are really not living the faith, whether it's become something that's marginal for us and isn't transformative for us. Okay. The Old Testament says, God, to be sure, framed man for an immortal destiny, the created image of his own endless being. But since the devil's envy brought death into the world, they make him their model that take him for their master. We have been given our holy Christian faith so that we might obtain eternal life and blessedness. But to conform perfectly with the spirit of the founder of our faith, Christ our Savior, and with his teaching, to really cleanse ourselves morally, to increase in virtue, to become acquainted with spiritual perfection. All this demands special, grace-filled cooperation from above, in addition to a Christian's personal own, person's own efforts. This grace-filled cooperation is called sanctification and is given to us by the Lord. It is achieved by the Holy Spirit in the Holy Church 
founded by our Lord Jesus Christ for our sanctification and salvation. You and I are children of the church. The question arises, do we live as Christians are supposed to live? No, we are far from living in the way we should. So it's interesting how he frames it here, you know, that we need to look, okay, what is our identity? And our identity isn't the kind of radical individualism that is put forward in the West. You know, that we see ourselves as part of the church, the body of Christ, and that we live as part of that body and that we are sanctified uh, by cooperating with the, the grace that God has given to us and seeking to respond to it in every, every way. And so, you know, part of a period like Lent for us should begin with this deep examine, and he'll talk about this further on, of our, of our life in light of, of the gospel, in light of Christ and the cross, the love that we see there, to see if our, our life is in conformity with that reality. You know, it's interesting for those who've been in the Theophan the group, the St. Theophan group, uh, the work begins uh, with the season of Lent. And he's talking to Anastasia, this young woman, about how important that first week of Lent is to enter into it fully, holding nothing back in order that one's purpose might be clear what what we are seeking would be clear and we remember to you remember in the group we talked about how that first in that first week of lent people would often take off a full week of work so as to enter into the disciplines of lent and to prepare themselves to go to confession at the end of that first week and receive holy communion so everything about their life became fully focused upon entering into this greater discipline. And, you know, now we receive ashes, uh, you know, as a sign of that starting point, but it almost becomes sort of like a, a mark of Christian identity in the loosest sense. It's the day we find out, you know, how many, you know, people on campus are Catholic because they're walking around with uh, a cross of ashes on their forehead, or they're posting online, you know, hashtag, you know, with a picture of themselves with ashes on their forehead. And, you know, it's the, the height of absurdity. Uh, for, for, first of all, the gospel we read for that day, I'm, you know, it's, I'm always amused by it because Christ says, you know, when you're fasting, you wash your, wash your face and, you know, you don't give this appearance of, you know, of fasting or of the discipline that you've embraced. And here we are, we're walking around town with ashes on our forehead and posting pictures of them for everybody to see. And uh, it does, it makes no sense whatsoever. And so right there, I think it tells us, well, do we really understand what we are doing and what we are embracing here and why? You know, what, what do the ashes really mean for us? You know, people on that day, to be honest with you, are more concerned about receiving their ashes because I think it's something unique, something new, something different than they are concerned about receiving Holy Communion, which is the cure for what the ashes tell us, that we are food for worms. Remember your dust 
and to dust you shall return, that because of your sin, that this is the consequence of it. And, but people will receive it and then turn around and walk out of church. And for me, you know, when I became Catholic, it seemed like the most absurd thing to me, that that would be the case, uh, that, that there would be something so important about receiving those, uh, that it would be more important than receiving Holy Communion. And the same thing happens on Palm Sunday. It's like people are getting a door prize, you know, of ashes or a palm, but uh, don't have a sense of why, why we are doing it and what it means. And, uh, and so we ha really have to go back again to the sources of our faith as we're doing here and as the author is doing with to scripture, to the fathers, what the tradition tells us in terms, about, in terms of asceticism as a whole. At our holy baptism, we gave vows. If we were baptized as infants, our sponsors gave them on our behalf. We made a contract with Christ, and in this way, we became his children, his servants, the children of God. At baptism, the Holy Church sings, as many have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. Alleluia. Therefore, since we belong to God, we must live in accordance with God's commandments, in accordance with Christ's teachings and the laws of the church. We are baptized. We are Christians, but we don't know very much about our faith. And so if this is what the parents are promising to do, to form their children in this faith in which the child is baptized, and the godparents are swearing that as well, then you would think that would, again, would be manifest in the way that we would live our life. If this is our dignity, if this is our identity, that our time, our energy is going to be focused upon this in terms of formation. And yet so often it's redirected to other things that are focused upon this world and success within the world, or simply our own personal happiness, uh, rather than the fact that we've put on Christ, we die to sin, to self, in order to be able to live for God. And so the formation, the deepest love that a parent could have for their child would be to form them in this faith, not to get them ballet lessons or to be in as many sports as they possibly could be in or to put them into school at age three in order that they could get a step up on other five-year-olds when it comes to kindergarten so that they can sort of get into the better class of school. It's all, it's all nonsense. There's a kind of absurdity when you think about it, when we've been promised to share in the very life of God, and yet we, we push it not just out of the mar to the margins of our life, but out of our life. Christ becomes dethroned, if you will, and the ego, the self, is enthroned. And I think, you know, when we look at our, our lives, especially during Lent, it's really in large part to look at how we have done that the ways that we have done that and the ways that we have not loved Christ in order that we might turn, make a more radical turn, a shifting of the self toward God and embrace once again, all the things that, that lead to him. And again, that is not meant to end at Lent, but really to have Lent as the springboard into entering into it in fuller measure. 
All who are born in the bosom of Holy Church through Holy Baptism are born into a new life. They grow and are brought up in the spirit of truth and receive the spiritual life, grace-filled gifts of, for life on earth, with a promise of eternal gifts for the future life. Thus, to live in the church is an essential condition for a Christian's moral development. The Church of Christ was founded by our Lord and Savior, and he showed us the path by which we must go to him. And he showed us how to follow his teaching. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Consequently, we must go by his path pointed out to us by our Savior. So an interesting thought at the end of that first paragraph, that to live in the church is an essential condition for a Christian's moral development. And, you know, it gives lie to the statement that we so often hear, I'm spiritual but not religious, you know, that basically is saying, you know, I construct, I follow what appeals to my sensibilities, my perceptions, more than what has been revealed by Christ as essential for our life in him which includes seeing ourselves as part of the body of Christ, part of the church, and conforming ourselves to the teachings of Christ and to the teachings of his church, of his body. It's there that our fullest development takes place. And this destroys, I think, <clears throat> a sense of a kind of radical individualism in one's relationship with God and in the Christian faith that we don't walk this path in isolation, that we are bound together in this extraordinary way where the salvation of, of the other is as important as our own salvation. And that we see our life and living our life fully in Christ is something that elevates the, the whole body and elevates those around us, our family, our friends, you know, all those who share the faith with us. And so that we are bound uh, to live that life as fully as we can, not just for ourselves, but for each other. And likewise, when we look around the world and we see what's going on in, in, in the Ukraine, and we see what's going on in our own country, and so the violence, the ugliness, the evil that we see, our first response to that should be this deepening commitment to Christ, should be repentance, that it's only by the grace of God that healing takes place. And healing only takes place for us within the context of the church, that it has been described as kind of hospital, that this is where we are healed of our deepest wounds in and through the sacramental life. And, uh, to step outside of that, we, we hobble ourselves and we remove from ourselves the very things that are the healing balm for us. And, you know, I think what has happened within the church in modern times and even the ugliness that we see within it, we lose sight of also seeing it as an eternal reality that when we enter into the liturgy, we are entering into, as it were, the eternal Jerusalem. We are entering into the body of Christ, into this communion with all the saints and martyrs. And 
I think though, as we experience the church and as have often been told to experience it, we lose sight of that communion of saints. And so when we see things happening as they have happened within past generations, one can become demoralized and begin to think, there's nothing for me to be found here. Nothing healing, nothing that gives hope, nothing that gives strength. And, uh, and when we lose sight of that too, when priests lose sight of it, then they begin to put forward their own personality, uh, their own individuality, rather than acting in accord with the mind of the church or with the mind of, of Christ and not seeking to guide others to Christ, but rather, you know, things often become this kind of personality cult. And, you know, the priest's simple purpose is to offer the very things that Christ has given for our healing, to administer the sacraments, to pray, to preach the word of God. It's that simple. And we've turned it into a complicated thing where you know, priests think that they have to be all these different things for people rather than giving them the one thing that they need, which is Christ. Okay, but I, again, you know, I think in every paragraph here, something jumps out. The church is an essential condition to the Christian's moral development. That we, we cannot see our identity outside of the reality of the church. And this means having a sacramental worldview, a sacramental view uh, of our own life. And, you know, coming from a non-Catholic background, this was something that was absent for me. You know, not a lack of faith, but the sense of our uh, clear understanding of the incarnation and what that means for our experience of God that it has been forever changed in and through Christ taking our flesh upon himself, that our experience of God becomes ever so concrete and tangible, and that presence of Christ in the world remains ever concrete and tangible for us in and through the church, his body, and in and through the sacramental life. And so when somebody says, you know, do you have a personal relationship with Christ? We should say, absolutely in the deepest possible way that a person could imagine that I'm immersed in it without hesitation. I don't know why that's hard for us for some reason. I mean, we should be able to say that, you know, in a heartbeat, but I think because we have lost this understanding of the incarnation, we see it again as an historical event 2000 years ago, rather than this revelation of God that remains true for us and that transforms our experience of God and our understanding of ourselves as human beings and how we are to live our lives. Anthony. Uh, that last thing you said, Father, about seeing something, just the incarnation as an historical event, mm -hmm. there's a problem we have with the word memory. When Christ says, do this in memory of me, I, I knew it. For a while as a Calvinist, I thought, oh, it's just a past historical event. But it wasn't until I heard in the Byzantine liturgy, I think, let their memory be eternal. That it's a continuous presence, not just a recalling of some data that this life once lived. And we've lost our language and the philosophy of language and the philosophy of being. And that messes up our understanding of our faith, in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. Perfectly 
said. And how one gets back to that, I think, is the question. And, you know, I think when we look at the saints uh, who lived in similar times to our own, it was through the experience of it, you know, uh, through the sort of what you experience within the Byzantine liturgy. And I think it's true across the board. It's, it, it is through the sacramental life that men and women are exposed to that reality of the presence of Christ again and again, you know, through the divine liturgy, through confession, you know, that we are drawn into the, the mystery of faith and comprehend, begin to comprehend the presence of God in and through the gift of faith. We're nourished uh, in our faith through receiving what Christ has given us. And again, it's a hard thing for us in Western culture to pull it out of our mind to, as you said, to think about memory in this limited way that we think of it, and also to think of knowledge in the, the limited way or knowing in the limited way that we do. That faith is a comprehension. It's a knowing, a knowing of that which is divine, the divine life and divine truth. But it's not something that is captured by intellect and reason. You know, intellect and reason may struggle with it and seek to articulate it. But it's a gift given by God. And in and through it, we, we come to comprehend God himself and divine things. And the, the way that Christ has given us to do that is in and through his church and in and through the sacramental life. And so when a kind of minimalism emerges, you know, whether it's Eastern or Western rites, you know, it's, I, I think we're in jeopardy because we are treating our life in Christ in sort of this consumeristic fashion. We come and get what we want what we think we need, and then we go on with our business, the, the, the business of the rest of our life, rather than, again, seeing this is the most essential reality that we participate in and that shapes our life. And so it really has to begin with children. It has to begin with ourselves, certainly, this you know, kind of radical conversion of life, repentance, but then also begin with the children right from the beginning to, to form them in this, to love it and to see the beauty of it. It's amazing. You know, kids have this capacity to know God and comprehend truths that I think we, we don't see them as being able to do. You know, we often will say, tell ourselves that, you know, they don't have this capacity for abstract thought. Well, that doesn't mean they don't have the capacity to know God. We have this holy half hour for children here at the oratory every month. And it's amazing what you see there and how you begin to see, hear children talk about Jesus and talk about God. You know, it's, there's a comprehension there that is greater than we imagine. Again, we hear Christ say, you know, it was on Saturday, you know, let the little children come unto me. You know, the, the, the apostles want to, you know, get rid of them. They're an annoyance. And, you know, he has to tell them, unless you become like them, you're not entering into the kingdom of heaven. Unless you let go of the illusion of knowing everything and being the center and the source of life, your own life, you'll never come to experience the joys of the kingdom.
So every path and every action demands a podvig. And this brings us back to our essential point. That is an ascetical struggle. Therefore, our holy faith is an ascetic faith demanding ascetic labor in the struggle with our sinful passions and lust. How must we live and struggle? Our Lord Jesus Christ himself shows an example, for I've given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. The saints also provide us with an example. In his Sermon on the Mount, our Lord Jesus Christ gives us the whole essence of the event. I'm sorry. Yes, the whole essence of evangelical teaching. This is found in the fifth, sixth, and seventh chapters of the Gospel of St. Matthew. In the Beatitudes, the Lord teaches us that we must be born again spiritually and thus prepare ourselves for the beatitude of eternal life in the heavenly man's. I'm sorry, I think I must have left something out there. Eternal life in the heavenly. I wonder what that's supposed to say. The first step toward this is to recognize one's spiritual emptiness, one's sinfulness and worthlessness, to become humble. This is why blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But only those who observe all the commandments will achieve this. Not everyone who saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father in heaven. So the next sort of key point for us here after seeing ourselves and our lives in the context of the church is the virtue of humility. Truthful living living in what has been revealed to us by Christ and what he reveals to us uh, in and through our conscience and how it often rebukes us whenever we've turned away from the commandments of God. And so it's only by, again, dethroning ego through humility uh, that we are able then to perceive the truth. Insofar as we cling to the self and to ego, our vision of the truth is distorted. We're always going to see it through what is satisfying to us on some level or serves our own ends. And this can be true of religion itself. And I think, you know, we've talked about this in some other groups too, that religious people are capable of the deepest delusions. That, you know, when we begin to pursue faith, you know, our religion, our belief in Christ, but with our own ends, when the ego is still enthroned, then we are seeing it again through that distorted lens. And we begin to see life as a whole through that distorted lens. You know, Christ even talks about this when, you know, looking at, if you're looking at your neighbor and, you know, you are trying to pull the splinter out of his eye when you have a log in your own. Or if you have a log in your own eye, you're going to see logs all over the place. And so take the log out of your own eye in order to be able to see clearly. And so dethroning ego in an enormous way is removing that log. You know, because once we do that, we're not going to judge a soul. You know, we're only going to see us ourselves, as this author says, recognize one's spiritual emptiness, one's sinfulness and worthlessness outside of Christ. This is what humility offers us. And then there's, that's when a true freedom begins to emerge. We, begin, we stop laboring 
under the burden of our own ego and the kind of false freedom that we seek for ourselves and we begin to experience a true freedom in Christ. He then gives us a little example here, both through Theophan the Recluse and St. John Kronstadt. Both are very powerful, I think, in terms of uh, a kind of daily testing. So if we're entering into Lent and we want to think, how do I really want to enter into this holy season? How do I, I want to be able to see all the things that have been put forward so far? And so through Theophan here and St. John Kronstadt, we're given some pretty concrete advice and uh, not only to do it, but how to do it. Theophan writes, the true Christian tests himself every day. Daily testing to see whether we have become better or worse is so essential for us that without it, we, can be, we cannot be called Christian. Constantly and persistently, we must take ourselves in hand. Do this from the morning, establish thoughts about the Lord's firmly, Lord firmly in mind, then during the whole day, resist any deviation from these thoughts. Whatever you are doing, with whomever you are speaking, whether you are going somewhere or sitting, let your mind be with the Lord. You will forget yourself and stray from this path, but again, turn to the Lord and rebuke yourself with sorrow. This is the podvig of spiritual attentiveness. So the podvig of spiritual attentiveness, the spiritual struggle of being attentive to ourselves as human beings, the thoughts that we have go through our minds, what it is that we are pursuing, whether or not we are really living for Christ or for, for the self. And th this, you know, is a far deeper asceticism, if you will, than simply giving up Oreos or beer or something like that for Lent or Netflix. You know, I think to be attentive to the, ourselves in the moment and to examine ourselves from the first thing in the morning, you know, that to have a kind of memory of ourselves as living in Christ and our identity being found in him and seeking to please him within the context of our, our life uh, in which we find ourselves, that this becomes the frame through which we view our day-to-day -day life. It takes a great asceticism to continue to view one's life through that frame. And again, not have the ego jump back into the center and become that, that lens rather than Christ becoming the, the lens through which the, we view all things. You know, you, you would think being ordained as a priest would give you a pretty clear and sharp identity. You know, okay, you're ordained for this particular purpose. And uh, unfortunately, it doesn't take a lot to rip one out of that identity, you know, and precisely, again, because of our sin and the blindness that it brings, but the ego, when the self, again, emerges and our desire uh, to have our way to, to be understood and accepted in the way that we want to be understood and accepted, to have our work bear the fruit that we think it should bear for God, rather than the, the fruit that he wants it to bear, or even simply to do what, what it is that he wants us to do, 
So to listen to him so deeply that we are seeking to act in accord with his, his mind and his desire rather than our own. Because as religious individuals, you know, our minds, our imagination, our creativity can form and fashion all kinds of things that we tell ourselves, oh, this is from God. This would bear great fruit if I did this. People would respond to that. I'd get a lot of people in that group, or I'd raise a lot of money if, you know, we did this or that. And uh, it, it doesn't necessarily happen that way. You know, we follow a crucified Lord. You know, one who redeems the Lord by emptying himself, allowing himself to be broken and poured out in love. And we often, even within our Christianity, will look to the things that we can build through our own efforts and through our own, own activities that elevate self-esteem. It's a religious self-esteem and identity, but nonetheless, it's a self-esteem that is rooted in the ego. Why do you think we have all these schools and all these church, huge churches built. And I'm, I, you know, I don't get me wrong there. You know, I understand the importance and the beauty of such things, but a lot of it has to do with sublimation more than it does have to do with faith in God and obedience to his will. We are sublimating something, an energy that we repress by not pursuing our own wants and desires, but we redirect all that energy to, to other things that are a religious identity. And so we're, we're building all these things that, that construct this religious identity where we're telling ourselves, you've got it. You know, you're, you're, you're building the kingdom. You're building the city of God. I always hated that song. I'm sorry for those who like folk music here, but we used to early on when I became Catholic, we sang it all the time. Let us build a city of God. And I don't know, it's just, you know, it's, it, again, it always felt like we are sort of putting our self at the center. The, the Christian community has turned itself, turned in on itself rather than turning toward God and its, and its worship. And it, this manifested itself in all kinds of ways. And so it's, it's not always those who are even, who seem most successful within the life of the church and most impactful that are necessarily doing the will of God. It could be somebody who's living a hidden life, someone who's carrying an enormous cross, but who embraces it with this really deep faith that holds together the fabric of a whole community of a family and it's hidden it's hidden from view from everybody but because of the depth of that faith and love for god it's transformative and you know in our day and age when we we look so much to success where there's hero worship on all these different levels i think we can worship that kind of success within the life of the church and we know where it leads I mean, look, look to the, the great darkness that has come over the church and how easy Satan enters into that and then brings it all crumbling down. You know, where there's this kind of clericalism that I think that build up and puts individuals on this pedestal and gives them a kind of freedom and power, you know, where nobody is acknowledging even things that they're seeing. And it goes on for generations. 
And we, we think of the, the damage that has been done to individuals. So far from building up the life of the church, it's, it's destroyed an individual's faiths. Faith has been destroyed in and through it. And so what the church needs now, again, is, you know, not, not programs, not another book. You know, it needs conversion. It needs saints. It needs prayers. Those who are willing to undergo this kind of internal revolution where they live for Christ. And this really has to be the heart of our ascetical life, to love him and to love him alone above all things. And if good and beautiful things within this world rise out of that, praise be to God. But I think we have to be very careful in the sense that, you know, we, we allow that to emerge by his hand and in accord with his will and by his grace. St. John Kronstadt, one of my favorites, although new, new, I'm new to reading about him in, in his writings. Every day, hour and minute, keep a strict watch and consider every thought, desire, and movement of the heart, every word and deed, and do not let yourself be defiled by one sinful thought, desire, or movement of the imagination in word or deed, knowing that the Lord is the righteous judge who is judging you every instant and is evaluating the inner man. Continually keep yourself pure for God. Now the question will arise, how do you definitely find out exactly what is sinful and to what degree so as to know clearly and distinctly if one has sinned and how frequently and to critically examine one's life like a strict and unhypocritical judge. So again, this strict watchfulness of mind and heart. Out of the, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. You know, it's out of the heart that all that is wicked and vile flows. And so it is there that we have to seek a kind of purity of heart. And the way that we do this is how St. John Cronset uh, describes it, that we watch every thought, desire, movement, every word, deed, not to let ourselves to be defiled in thought, desire, or movement, or the imagination. That this is what Cassian, another great writer in the spiritual tradition, St. John Cassian, tells us is the immediate aim of the spiritual life, purity of heart that we seek to purify the mind and the heart of the passions and to direct the desires that we have as human beings toward God in order that we might comprehend and see the truth and embrace it. And so that's the immediate goal. The ultimate goal certainly is eternal life for us, but the immediate goal that keeps us from pursuing things that are contrary to God is allowing our heart to be purified by his grace and through the ascetical life. So it's refreshing to hear this and to hear it put so clearly and succinctly in these paragraphs, because I, I think, you know, everything in this, in the Western tradition these days seems to be a hodgepodge, you know, when talking about the, uh, of things, when talking about the spiritual life, there is this kind of lack of clarity uh, that we find in writers like Theophan and Kronstadt who are uh, so deeply rooted in the spiritual tradition. 
and know through experience what that spiritual battle looks like, what this ascetic podvig looks like. Theophan advises to do this, put the law of God on one side and your life on the other and see where they are similar and whether there is no resemblance. Take your deeds and subject them to the law to see if they are permissible or take the law and see if it is applied in your life. So as not to omit anything in this important matter, you have to have an orderly system. Sit down and call to mind all your duties toward God, your neighbors and yourself, and then go through your life in relation to all these. Or you may go through the Ten Commandments and the Beatitudes, one after the other, and see if your life accords with them. Or read those parts of the Gospel of St. Matthew where the Savior sets out the strictly Christian law and also the epistles of James, which we've been reading a lot of, of lately, and, uh, and especially, and the epistles of St. Paul, especially Romans and Ephesians. Read all this and then check your own life, how it conforms. But finally, take the rite of confession and check your own behavior against it. The result of such an examination of one's life is to reveal a vast number of deeds, words, thoughts, and feelings, and desires that were against the law, but were permitted, even though they should not have been. A vast number that should have been done, but were not. And many that were done in accordance with the law, but turned out to be defiled by an impure motive. From all this, you will gather a vast number, and even your whole life, perhaps, will be made up only of bad deeds. Now, that might sound a little bit depressing, uh, and, and it would be, I think, outside of the context of that relationship with Christ and the love that has been revealed in him. Again, it is our, our desire for love and, in large part, our experience of that love that allows us to enter into this process that Theophan puts forward. Uh, that really requires a lot from us, kind of a self-examination, that we do that for love. Again, not to, to beat up on ourselves, you know, not, you know, uh, to, you know, diminish ourselves in any way, but rather to seek to live in the truth in order that we, again, might come to know that the freedom that Christ promises and also experience something of that love again. And the reality is, if, you know, we have to be prepared that when we look at our lives, we might see that we've gone off the path altogether uh, when we look deeply enough. And we, there, there has to be a part of us that's willing to do that, to be that vulnerable before God, that we trust his love and his mercy so much that we're willing to lay, throw out everything on the table, to set it into the light and allow him to reveal, reveal the truth of it. And, you know, within the context of confession, I think the more that we do that, the more that we see the presence of that love and mercy, and there becomes something that's joyful in it. And the way that we've talked about the love of fasting, and that we would say, always talk about the joy of Podvig, or the, the joy of confession, the love of, of confession, again, because of what it restores, which is this inti intimacy with God. Now, this is always the big objection. Perhaps someone will say that all this is not necessary for all Christians, but only for the monastics. 
But no, this is for everyone. The person is a Christian, not by calling, but by his way of life. All of us, not just monastics, have to think about and be concerned for our salvation. The law of the gospel is given for everyone. So I think in more modern parlance, especially in the West, we would speak of uh, the universal call to holiness, that it isn't simply the monastics or the religious that are called to this kind of holiness and this love of God, this willingness to look at one's life in the light of the truth, that this is something that all of us are called to by virtue of our baptism, by the relationship that we've been called to enter into and the grace that we've been given. And so again, you know, our love for the Lord, but also our gratitude for the gift that has been given is what would compel us to enter into this kind of spiritual struggle. In answer to the question, how must a Christian live? How must we act and behave? The Apostle Paul shows us. His words directed to the Ephesians are also addressed to us. And I apologize for the length of, of this quote from Ephesians. Uh, I think it's helpful for us to go through, but I, I know it's a little bit long. Be ye, therefore, followers of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ hath loved us and hath given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of giving thanks. For ye... For this ye know, that no whoremongering, nor unclean person, nor covetous man, who is an idolater, hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Be not ye therefore partakers with them, for ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord, walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. For it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done, I'm sorry, are done of them in secret. But all things that are reproved are made manifest by the light. For whatsoever cloth make manifest is light. Wherefore he saith, wake thou that sleepest and rise from the dead, and Christ shall be thy light, the light. See then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Wherefore be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is, and be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God, and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. So, one wonders when reading a passage like this, if we ever read the scriptures. 
because it's everything that we've been talking about. And we know that the, the fathers were deeply immersed in the scriptures, that this was their spiritual reading. And as we've often said, they become living icons uh, of the gospel for us. And uh, certainly St. Paul in and of himself does that for us too, and both through his writings, but in his life and what he suffered. But in this simple passage from Ephesians, he lays it out very clearly what our life is to look like and where our life comes from is living in the light of Christ, exposing everything to the light in order that it might be healed, not living our lives anymore in the darkness or under the illusion that somehow we can continue on with our life as it has been and expect that we might know the, the healing and also know the, the fullness of the promises that have been made to us in Christ. We cannot treat the grace of God cheaply. And, you know, I think this, we often do that, you know, uh, frightfully, I think in our reception of Holy Communion and the grace that comes to us through, you know, the confessional as well, that we take hold of these things again, you know, in a half-hearted way, not really discerning what it is that God has given to us and the preciousness of the gift. And, and so, again, you know, when we think of Lent and how we want to reflect upon our lives, uh, I think this little passage from Ephesians would be a good one to carry along with us, um, you know, to ask ourselves, are, are we seeking on a day-to-day -day basis to bring those things, those wounds within us into the light in order that they might be healed? And are we also seeking to conform ourselves to what has been revealed to us in Christ? It's very, we don't need to complicate it. I think it's very simple as it's put forward here. We have to become interested in the holy faith. We must study it and live it in accordance, live in accordance with it. We must take care concerning our salvation. We will do this if we read holy scripture, if we study the law of God, if we pray morning and evening and at all times. If we fast, if we carry out God's commandments and the church's commandments. In addition to this, we have to acquire Christian virtues, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, generosity, mercy, faith, meekness, abstinence. We have to go to church, attend divine services, be cleansed of our sins, and be sanctified through the holy mysteries which are given by the holy church for our salvation. So, we take hold of everything that God has given to us as gift that helps us to set aside the passions, to overcome our vices. And we look to all those things that help to foster virtue within us. The scriptures, the lives of the saints, the writings of the saints, all the ascetical disciplines, fasting and praying in particular. Thus we see that in accordance with scripture, in accordance with the teachings of the church and the Holy Fathers, we must struggle in order to go by the Christian path to salvation. The holy apostles taught their disciples and instruct us as well. We must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. The Lord also says to us, enter ye in at the straight gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. 
and many there will be which go in thereat. No doubt you will say or think, they go, they want us to live like monks and her oh, there they go, they want us to live like monks or hermits. But look at your, our friends and acquaintances and everyone around us. They live for their own pleasure, do what they want, and none of them ever think about what is being said here. They do not think about the heavenly kingdom, the future life. They do not spoil their mood by such considerations. So, you know, I think this came up a little bit earlier, <clears throat> but, you know, I think when we look around those in the world who never give thought to the life of a Christian and what it is to look like, might seem to live a rather peaceful life, you know, that isn't fraught a lot of times with, you know, great upheavals or doesn't involve this constant struggle or straining to enter by the narrow way. And so there can be this constant pull to wonder, you know, is, is this what we are really called to? Or, or is what being jammed down our throats, the life of hermits and monks and monastics? Yes, it's true. They live and pay no attention to the spiritual life. They do not believe it in that, in that or in the future life. Therefore, there is nothing spiritual in them. They have no peace of soul or spiritual joy. So they have no restraining center. Nothing has any moral or spiritual value for which they might restrain themselves or for which they might strive. Therefore, they are connected with debauchery and lasciviousness, crime, spiritual suicide, spiritual bankruptcy. So it's interesting, you know, that individuals, I think, within the world, it's not as though we would want to demonize individuals, because even if they've turned away from the faith, they are still created in the image and likeness of God. They still bear within him, within them, the life that God has given them. Uh, and so they, they can have a kind of natural virtue, even, that they've fostered, you know, these natural kind of, of qualities and gifts. But it can be empty of, of the fullness that has become possible for us in Christ. And eventually, that pursuing that path of being a good person, you know, I'm, I'm a good person, or I'm just trying to be a good person, is not the same thing as pursuing life in Christ. We're not called to be good people. We're called to be Christ within the world, to put on the mind of Christ, to die to self and to sin, to live for God. And so a person could get along in this world by being a good person, you know, being kind, you know, to others, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a godly life you know, that we are, are called to, or that it's an embrace of what has been revealed to us. Christianity is an ascetical religion. Christianity is a teaching about the gradual extirpation of the passions, about the means and conditions of the gradual acquisition of the virtues. These conditions are internal, consisting of podvig and given from without, consisting of our dogmatic beliefs and grace-giving sacraments, which have only one purpose, to heal human sinfulness and lead us to perfection. And so, you know, so many have moved away from such things, 
a belief in, you know, in dogmas, you know, that there is, have certain been certain things that have been revealed to us, truths that have been revealed to us that are binding. And that uh, our life and the way that we live our life uh, has value to it. And not only value to it, but eternal value to it. And uh, that this requires that we live our, our life in a certain fashion. And, you know, part of it, again, is I think what we see, you know, in the void of the last few generations in particular, certainly going further back, as we've talked about in many groups before, you know, long before the, you know, certain people like to blame things on the Second Vatican Council, but this emerged, I think, long before within history where, you know, there's this movement to place man at the center of all things, or reason, intellect at the center of all things, and again, to dethrone God, to turn away from faith altogether. And in doing that as human beings, again, we, we diminish ourselves. And so it's in, in and through all these things, which we embrace not slavishly, uh, you know, but rather with this sense that they bring healing, that they've been given to us for, for that purpose, that we might know healing in life. Yeah. Any comments, questions, rebuttals? You agree with everything that's been said. That's pretty amazing. So, so I hope this was helpful. You know, I, I think I always feel that Lent sort of creeps up on us. You know, no sooner do we exit the Christmas season uh, than it's it's upon us, and often we find ourselves in the midst of it without really having prepared ourselves uh, mentally or spiritually, and. I hope this at least provides some framework you know, that comes to us from the spiritual tradition. That we have, again, this great treasure house that we can take hold of. Okay. So just to wrap things up, uh, this week we are going to be finishing St. Theophan on Wednesday. We're at the last letters. And so on March 9th, we are taking up the Ladder of Divine Ascent by St. John Climacus, which is an extraordinary classic within the spiritual tradition, uh, probably the best teaching on the spiritual life and the struggle with the passions and growth and virtue, and uh, is in the East in particular read in every monastery during every season of Lent. And so we're going to have the good fortune of going through every single word of it in the next couple of years. And so not just for this Lent, uh, so we're not, we're going to take our time with it, but it's beautiful in every way. John Climacus is a magnificent teacher. So if you've loved Theophan, you'll love Climacus even more. And so tomorrow night is the Evercatinus is always Theophan. And then next week we'll pick up with Climacus. Okay. So thank you all for, for joining tonight. Hope it was helpful and we'll have it up as a podcast as soon as we can depending on Ren's schedule here so if it takes a long time you could ring her up and ask what's going on and if you would like to be on the email list to receive uh the zoom link for the ladder of divine ascent um please go to the philippine ministries page on the pittsburgh oratory website and subscribe 
to Philoclea Ministries. We'll be sending out a big general email inviting everyone to join that email list next week. So make sure you're subscribed. Okay, everybody, thank you so much. And when we close, as always, with our Father, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Amen. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. And what God bless you, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. And go in peace. Thanks be to God. Thank God. Thank you all.